2: Here are your host for the Heart of Innovation, Emmy Award-winning journalist and founder of The Way to My Heart, Kim McNicholas, and interventional cardiologist and founder of the Save My Piggies Health Education Series, Dr. John Phillips.
3: Yeah, I am Kim McNicholas, and Dr. John Phillips is with us um, as well. You know, today's show is really dedicated to my mom, Marilyn Lou Baum McNicholas, because She transitioned earlier this year um, after she had a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm. She had been diagnosed six months earlier with an aneurysm higher up in her body called in her thoracic area, and it was only four centimeters. They said it didn't need to be treated. Nothing needed to be done at that point, but they didn't bother to check to see that she also had one. Um, lower on in her, below her, you know, below her diaphragm. So today I really wanted to get into a discussion about it because I want to prevent this from happening to anyone else. There's so much happening around um, aneurysm research in terms of new diagnostic um, options, treatment options, et cetera. So we're going to get into that in a little bit um, on the show. But first I want to bring in Dr. Phillips. With us, Um, we got to have a moment of inspiration because this is a heavy topic for me today.
0: (laughs) Dr. John Phillips' spectacular vascular moment of
1: inspiration.
3: I needed that.
0: Yeah, yeah, Kim, you know,
4: this is going to be a bit of a heavy topic, but, you know, ultimately, we hope that the suffering, you know, the the kind of the missteps that maybe happened to your mom can be prevented by us us talking about this disease process and and, and aneurysms in general. Um, We've got a great guest on who's an expert in, uh, you know, aneurysm repair in certain areas. I do some aneurysm repair in other areas, but it can be a little bit confusing for patients. Uh, But at the end of the day, like every show that we have, it's about patient advocacy, education, and obviously we want to prevent um, this from happening because we do, I, I do see patients who come in with what we call a rupture or a tear in that vessel who had no idea that they had an aneurysm. And because it's, you know, the aorta is the biggest blood vessel in the body. And, and when that, Uh, ruptures it's like a bike tire popping it's really hard hard to save that person's life and like with anything an ounce of prevention is worth a a pound of cure so getting into my kind of quote of inspiration uh there is you know everybody knows albert einstein albert einstein actually died from a a ruptured aneurysm they had tried to repair it they would try to repair it several times and I'll probably get this wrong. But my understanding is at one point they wrapped his aorta um, with like cellophane to try to kind of keep it intact. And uh, according to uh, the lore, his his last words were in German, although he was in, in the U.S. So, we don't know what he actually said, but I, I like a lot of his quotes, but I like this one a lot. And it, he just said simply learn from yesterday, live for today, hope for tomorrow. The most important thing is not to stop questioning. And like with anything that's in medicine or, or life in general, question, question, question that leads to innovation. Um, and, and we're going to talk about new innovation and in repairing aneurysms. And I think hopefully maybe talk about some, some genetic predispositions that patients might have to developing aneurysms that we can now test for. So I'm looking forward to the show it's going to be great. Hopefully, it's informative. Hopefully, we'll have some some people call in and get some good questions. And uh, let's just get the ball rolling. huh?
3: I agree. But you bring up such a good point with that quote in that it's always important to question. And it has nothing to do with um, someone's credentials or their credibility or anything. And I think it's really important for patients who might be intimidated to ask their physician a question or their clinician a question that it's not necessarily challenging them. It is everyone's duty to question science evolves, medicine evolves. And it's important to understand different doctors, different (laughs) clinicians, different tools, different approaches, different philosophies. You have to ask questions in order to better understand what all might be available because it could be different depending on who you talk to and what might be best for you versus someone else. Exactly. And
4: you You don't want the patient to be a wallflower in the office with you. And a lot of patients are. And we've talked about this on the show many times as well, that sometimes physicians get a little bit on their put on guard when a patient asks them a lot of questions. Uh, You know, we see folks for second opinions regarding a lot of things. And we always talk about getting a second opinion for our patients because because, again, you have to have questions. You have to be um, comfortable with the treatment plan as outlined by the physician or the test that they want to order. And if you're not ask, and particularly as it pertains to aneurysms too, I have a lot of patients that'll come in and they know enough about their family history to ask about aneurysm. And oftentimes they will bring it up. Hey, my, my dad had an aneurysm. Should I get screened? Or so-and-so had an aneurysm. What should we do about it? And again, it's all about raising the bar of education for the patients, raising their awareness, because it's their body and, and they need to understand all
3: that, you know, can happen to it. So And our mantra is, hey doctor, let's chat. Chat is an acronym for check my carotids, C, H for heart, and then A for abdomen or aneurysm, and T for toes, for peripheral artery disease, check my leg pulses, check for those blockages or the narrowing in my leg arteries. So really important for you as a patient to ask your doctor for what you need to help you live a better quality of life. And actually, you know, Dr. George Arnatakis is um, a doctor that I met when we had a patient who was questioning her doctor, questioning the treatment and wanted to find out what other options were, were different. And so he was like, hey, Kim, I'm on speed dial 24 seven, whatever you need. So I said, hey, doctor, (laughs) we need help here. And he stepped right up and he helped us for a second opinion for one of our patients. And now he is here with us to talk aneurysms. Dr. Arnatakis, thank you so much for being here. You have a big announcement to make. You're making a huge shift in your career.
5: Yeah, that's right, Kim. Well, first, uh, thank you, um, you know, and your organization for the kind invitation. It's really an honor and privilege to to be here with you this afternoon. And um, as you alluded to, I, I'm a cardiovascular surgeon and um, have been practicing at University of Florida Health in Gainesville for um, the entirety of my career. And uh, shortly next month, we'll be moving to Austin, Texas, to the University of Texas Austin. Um, to the Dell Medical School to form the uh, cardiovascular, the adult cardiovascular and thoracic surgery uh, program there in Central Texas, and so um, it's an exciting move um, for us, and um, exciting to be recruiting other uh, talented individuals that share the same uh, passions for uh, treating patients afflicted with cardiovascular illness, including you know coronary artery disease, valvular heart disease, but as well a large component of my practice um, is, is aneurysm disease. And um, a lot of the overlapping uh, risk factors uh, for all of those illnesses relate to, um, you know, history of smoking, a family history, genetic predispositions. And so, um, again, it's really an exciting move. And um, aneurysm, uh, early detection, uh, novel treatments, surveillance, um, all of those um Um, All of those uh, are are really, really important to me and my practice. And so, again, I'm really excited to be here today and share my thoughts with all of you.
3: I'd like to actually go to break a little bit early uh, because I want to jump right in. and We're getting questions. We have um, one of our uh, listeners right now writing in about um, wanting to know what is an aneurysm? Great question. We're going to start there the moment we get back. So stay with us right here and listen to The Heart of Innovation.
2: Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
4: Welcome back, everybody. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Today's show is about aneurysms. Uh, it's often a confusing topic for, for patients because the, the nomenclature, meaning the definition, sometimes isn't understood by everybody. So, you know, during the break, George and I were talking, hey, you know, how do you, when you meet a patient for the first time and they have an aneurysm, how do you go walk with us through that journey? Like, how do you explain to them what is an aneurysm, where it's located, why you care about it, and, you know, what, what do you want, you know, what we, what should we do about it?
5: Yeah, sure, John. So I I tell patients that I see in the clinic, an aneurysm is an outpouching or a dilation of any artery in the body, and um, they can uh, originate anywhere along the arterial system in the body. And so the, the anatomy is that the aorta connects to the heart in the chest, and the heart is a pump pumping all the oxygenated blood throughout the body, and that's situated right smack kind of in the center of the chest toward the front. And the first part of the anatomy, John, as you know, is the ascending aorta that, that goes up toward one's uh, neck area. And at that um, uh, region, it turns to the left and toward the back. And where that turn occurs or where the branches come off, that go to the brain and the arms. And, and, and that turn is called the aortic arch. And after the last branch, which goes to the left arm, the aorta turns downward. Uh, kind of along the left hand side of one's spine in the back, and that's called the descending aorta, and it it, it traverses that region until it gets to the level of the diaphragm, which uh, separates our chest cavities from our abdominal cavity, and it passes through the diaphragm, and below the diaphragm, it then becomes the abdominal aorta, where it gives off the branches that go to the intestines, to the kidneys. And then in the pelvis, the aorta splits to go to both legs um, and that's called the aortic bifurcation where the iliac arteries are. And so folks can have an aneurysm along any segment along that way. And the reason we worry about aneurysms is uh, the analogy to a balloon. So when when you're blowing on a balloon, initially when the balloon is deflated. There's not a lot of tension on the wall of the balloon. The rubber lining is fairly thick, but the more and more you blow in a balloon and the bigger it gets, the lining of the balloon becomes thinner and thinner. And at some point you can see through it, it becomes transparent. And then when the balloon gets quite large, the wall strength of the balloon is not sufficient to withstand the tension from within and it will tear or burst. And that's what we worry about in aneurysms as they get to be Larger, their risk of rupture or tear, which is called a dissection, um, becomes greater with the greater diameter of the aneurysm. So, when we talk about number
4: one, the aneurysm, we're very specific about where it's located, which is why we have these these definitions: ascending, descending, and we're also pretty specific about the size, meaning the 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 diameter of it. Um, and so, what we what I try as a cardiologist, we try to mitigate what we call the wall stress or that stress up against the wall by we can h- try to reduce the pressure. But we also know that that wall stress is directly related to the the radius or the ultimately the diameter of the vessel too. So, is it safe to say that you know there's a certain point at which the diameter gets so big that the risk of rupture is is so high that it has to be fixed? Because a lot of patients, I think they come to us and say, well, I have, you tell me I have an aneurysm. Why aren't you fixing it now? So if you could go through, you yes, you've defined and talked to the patient, told them they have an aneurysm. So now you're going to talk to them about, okay, how do we treat this? And is it treating it with just medication? Are, are we doing testing to monitor it on a regular basis? And then are we pivoting to, okay, you need, whether it's a surgery or stents or something like that.
5: Yeah, so just as you alluded to and and a lot of um these data have emerged from from lots of studies that were done at um at actually Yale Medical Center through the 70s and 80s but at many other institutions around the country and the world looking at what is the risk of an aneur- aneurysm rupturing at a given diameter. And um, historically, what we've gone by is just the absolute diameter, maximum diameter of the aneurysm. And the way we determine that diameter is off of, typically, CAT scans or CT scans are the gold standard uh, imaging test to define the exact diameter of an aneurysm. However, other tests can be used, such as MRI, uh, echo, um, or ultrasounds of the heart, Uh, ultrasounds of the abdomen, but really the most precise and the one that surgeons reliably use um, to to dictate the threshold for surgery or or the timing of repair is really CAT scan. And so depending on the anatomic location, as I said, a person can have an aneurysm anywhere along the spectrum of the aorta or its branches um, will dictate the threshold at which repair should be recommended. And that's based on what the risk of a rupture is. So, in the ascending aneurysm, uh, in the ascending aorta, excuse me, um, the the threshold that the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, the the thoracic surgical societies recommend repair in a person without any symptoms or no known family history um, is five point five centimeters. Now, um, and then in in the descending aorta along the back, actually that that diameter is between 5.5 and 6 centimeters. Then when you get down into the abdominal area, um, the threshold is a little bit lower. It's 5 centimeters typically. Now, there's other factors that as a surgeon, when I'm meeting a patient, we take into consideration. A lot of those things would be a strong family history of aneurysms. If it was found a couple years ago and over the course of successive imaging tests, it's shown to grow. That's, that's a concerning feature. And so we take all those things into consideration with each individual patient. Um, one of the opportunities, I think, for, you know, really investigation and clinical research is a five-centimeter aneurysm in patient X does not necessarily represent the same risk as a five-centimeter aneurysm in patient Y. And so understanding some of the morphology of the aneurysm, some of the genetic vulnerabilities um, some of the stress patterns of blood flow with even advanced imaging, these are areas that lots of, um, uh, uh, um, surgeons and also cardiologists that have a focus on, on aneurysm disease are focusing on nowadays. So we can better tailor our recommendations based on the individual pa- uh, patient within, with a really targeted tailored approach rather than just a blanket, you know, five centimeters in everybody, um, mm-hmm. Our big focus, as you alluded to, when a person has a smaller, you know, moderate-sized aneurysm, like, for example, a a 4-centimeter aneurysm in the ascending aorta, well, we know that the risk of that rupturing in any given year is probably on the order of less than 1%. And um, we have to consider in any intervention in medicine, what are the risks of doing nothing versus the risks of the treatment to correct the problem. And so... We know from the risks of the surgery that's required to fix these problems what what that risk is, and that's where we determine that five to five point five centimeters is that is that current threshold at least according to the contemporary guidelines gotcha so let's let's
4: assume you've diagnosed a patient with an aneurysm that's below the threshold for repair. What are the next what are the, what's the next kind of points in your conversation with them about uh Maybe risk factor reduction, tobacco cessation, for example. Um, what do you want to do with their blood pressure? Because again, we talk about that pressure up against the aorta. How frequently are you going to expect them to get testing? Because a lot of times, patients they're not sure. You know, they ask they they want testing like every six six months, and I mean, it just yeah. it becomes a little confusing. So, I guess walk us through that in your practice.
5: Yeah, I think it's really important when these are found that patients really understand, you know, what it is that they have, number one. And number two, that that there is a treatment for it when it becomes appropriate. And so I really, a lot of times when these are found in an emergency department, uh, you know, patients arrive really, you know, scared of what they have and not knowing how it will be managed in the future. And I think an important aspect is um, we have a treatment We have ways that can uh, mitigate against further growth, like you alluded to, John, you know, stopping smoking, good blood pressure control. We uh, and every practice has some slight variation in this, but we encourage aerobic exercise. This is a big one that comes up all the time. And so walking, you know, running, flying, swimming, swimming. Uh, anything even lightweight training um, I encourage my patients to stay to maintain a healthy lifestyle and then um, it's
3: interesting because you feel like a ticking time bomb when you're told that you have even a four centimeter aneurysm and you feel like every move you make you could make it as one patient described it I feel like I'm just suddenly going to explode at some point when I'm out there running
5: And that's why, Kim, I think it's really important for people to understand what the diameter is and what the the natural history studies show that actual risk to be. And when it's low, a small aneurysm, you know, four centimeters, like we said, hypothetically, the risk is really quite small. Now, of course, it's not zero. And I tell my patients, obviously, we all wish that we had a, a crystal ball. But I think that it's important to understand that that risk is low, that we have treatment for it when it becomes the size that's appropriate. And I really encourage my patients when they leave the clinic to, to live their life. You know, this is a disease that we have a cure for, we have good surveillance patterns for. And John, to your question, the, the major way that we, we keep and monitor these is with CAT scans at regular intervals. And so there are guidelines for that when they're, you know, between four to 4.5 centimeters every year. And then if they remain stable, actually every two years is safe. When they get to be closer than to five centimeters, we do increase the frequency of the interval um, to uh, every year to keep a close eye. So we've got to run to break, but we'll continue this conversation
4: as soon as we get back. So stay tuned. Thanks, everybody.
3: Peripheral artery disease. If you've been experiencing leg pain, leg cramps, or neuropathy when walking and your doctor isn't hearing you, we are. We are The Way to My Heart, the largest support network for peripheral artery disease patients. And we want to help you get back on your feet again. Visit our website at thewaytomyheart.org or call our leg saver hotline, 415-320-7138. Your life and limb could depend on it.
2: Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
4: Welcome back, everybody. We're continuing our discussion about aortic aneurysms. We've got several questions from the audience. And, George, I'm just going to hit you rapid fire here. One of them is from Monique, and she asks, does aortic valve sclerosis Uh, is there any kind of correlation between that and aortic aneurysms or can it progress to uh, can you have valve disease and and that lead to an aneurysm
5: yeah great question Monique so I think first I it's important to because these can be confusing they sort of sound like aortic sclerosis um, specifically I think what you're referring to is sclerosis of the aortic valve which is Um, essentially the valve that separates the aorta from the heart and permits all the blood from exiting the heart with each heartbeat out to the aorta to go to the body and so um sclerosis of the aortic valve is when the those leaflets which typically in the normal developed valve consists of three leaflets that are paper thin and and open freely with each heartbeat where those become thickened or calcified over time and so um What's an important aspect in talking about aneurysm disease is about one or two percent of individuals in the population have a, a a variant. It's technically one of the most common adult congenital heart anomalies called a bicuspid aortic valve, which instead of those three leaflets, there's, there's two leaflets where um, there's fusion of, of the leaflets. And so um, I call it to my patients a normal variant because one to two percent, if you go to any you know, NFL stadium, you'll find three or four thousand people in the stadium that have a bicuspid valve. So it's so common that, you know, I, I don't necessarily refer to it as a congenital defect. Um, and uh, Kim, you mentioned uh, something about a bicuspid valve, I think. Right.
3: Right. Well, Arnold I can never say his name. Arnold Schwarzenegger actually had that defect as well. My brother has it.
5: Yes, it's, it's very common. As, as you start to talk about bicuspid valves, you, you know, out in, in conversation, you'll encounter a lot of folks who have one. And the important thing to Monique, your question, is that there is a strong association between a bicuspid valve and having an ascending aortic aneurysm. Now, having a bicuspid valve um, with, does not necessarily increase one's risk significantly of having like a triple A, which... Um, Kim, I I know that that we've spoken about a little bit. AAA is really an aneurysm in the belly. Um, Now, just to differentiate atherosclerosis, which is different than aortic sclerosis, is essentially hardening or calcification of the arteries within the body. And atherosclerosis, one of the biggest risk factors for that is a history of smoking, Um, age as well, you know, to, to a certain extent. And so atherosclerosis does have also in association with aneurysms throughout the aorta yeah
3: and then we have a question from erica
5: oh yeah
4: that just one last comment on that and then we'll get to erica's question what about um gender male versus female higher risk for aneurysm males right yes yeah that's important gotcha okay so erica had we're kind of switching gears here a little bit erica had a question. Uh, the she has pre- actually
3: been treated um, for a thoracic aneurysm. She had a Dacron oh. sleeve graft that was placed, and she was told that her graft should exceed her lifespan, but she was 36 when she received it, and so she's just wondering what truth there is to that and how can she extend the lifespan of that sleeve?
5: Yeah, so the the, the Dacron materials... Um, uh, theoretically do last forever. They are, it's an inert uh, material. So um, as you probably know, you, you know, unlike when people have organ transplants, you don't have to take immune suppression drugs to prevent rejection or anything like that. Um, they do last forever. Um, having said that, one of the things that I tell my patients to be vigilant of, just like folks who have had a valve replacement, um, you know, John, I'm sure we talk a lot about When people go to the dentist or have a colonoscopy, it's important to take an antibiotic right before, you know, those procedures or sessions, because that Dacron material can become infected, but that's a very, very low risk. And that would be really the main reason that, you know, it might not last forever. But apart from that, I have patients in my practice that had a Dacron replacement of of an aneurysm 40 years ago, and it looks on the CAT scans as though it were put in yesterday. What about
4: uh, exercise intensity? We talked about trying to uh, make sure the patients do some type of aerobic activity. I tell my patients, yes, that's great. I ask them not to do a lot of what we call isometric, so heavy lifting. Most of them aren't going to start deadlifting, squatting, bench pressing, etc. But I do ask them to kind of shy away from that. Is there any, I mean, do you have patients that are running marathons? Do you have patients that are doing, you know, ultra kind of athletic type things that you say, eh, maybe, maybe back off that a little bit.
5: Yeah. You know, that's a, it's a great question. And it's a very important one because as I alluded to earlier, I, I like for patients to leave, you know, the consultation not feeling as though this diagnosis should, should radically disrupt their lives. And so um, as you said, you know John, I, I've had lots of really you know active patients who've been found to have an aneurysm and so it, I really don't put any limits on aerobic activity so you know whether it be running a mile or 20 miles or biking you know a mile or 20 miles, I, I don't really put a lot of limits on aerobic activity and I also don't on um, you know kind of lightweight. Now in our practice we usually, and and I'll admit this is somewhat arbitrary limit to you know forty or fifty pounds of of deadlifting or strenuous lifting. Um, I do make a point to let my patients know that that's more of a theoretic concern. I, there's no study that I know of that actually shows that doing those exercises will make someone actually in fact more likely to rupture their aorta. If they have an aneurysm, Um, although there are studies that show with really, really heavy lifting the blood pressure in the aorta at those moments, those peak moments of of exertion, the blood pressure in the aorta goes very high. And so since we know that blood pressure is a risk factor for these aneurysms, it makes it makes sense to discourage against really heavy lifting. But, um, you know, I've had very high level athletes, uh, folks who've done Navy SEAL training, uh, you know, NFL athletes and um, with with small aneurysms and, you know, discouraging the heavy weight lifting, but from an aerobic intensity, um, I I try to, you know, encourage people, like I said, to to live a healthy lifestyle and I, I don't really limit the aerobic intensity.
3: And we're going to hear more on that. You're going to love our guest in our next Save My Piggy segment um, because he is an athlete with a stent, an aortic stent. Um, But one final quick question. We're going to combine Mark and Joyce's about how common it is for someone with PAD or heart disease who's never smoked or had other risk factors prior to get an aortic aneurysm and how to have that discussion with their doctor.
6: What is angioplasty? Hello, I'm John Phillips with this week's Medical Notepad. Do you have peripheral arterial disease or restricted blood flow in your leg arteries? And if so, are you experiencing pain when you walk? This is called claudication. Or do you have pain at rest? If the answer is yes to either of those questions, you may be referred to see a vascular specialist. And in doing so, they may ask and offer to perform a procedure called an angiogram. This is a diagnostic test where contrast fluid is injected through a catheter into your arteries and it fills the arteries pretty much from the belly button all the way down to the toes. This contrast material, is seen under x-ray, allowing the doctor to assess for narrowings within the leg vessels. If there is a significant narrowing, treatment may be offered to open up that vessel and restore blood flow. With respect to treatment options, angioplasty is one of them. Angioplasty, by definition, is the inflation of a balloon to basically push the plaque or the material that is causing narrowing within the vessel aside, opening up the vessel for better blood flow. There are many types of balloons out there. Some have medications on them. Some have blades to break up the plaque. Some of the balloons distribute fluid to break up the blood clot if there is one within the plaque. Oftentimes, the proceduralist can put a small ultrasound in the artery, basically a camera, which can help provide sizing for that vessel in order to figure out what type of balloon and size is needed. Again, The majority of the procedures that are done include a simple balloon, but there are these specialized balloons that we can also use. Finally, the newest type of balloon that we use has the ability to send small shock waves into the artery to break up calcium, which is basically a more hardened form of plaque. This is called lithotripsy. Ultimately, if you do have peripheral arterial disease and your doctor is recommending an angioplasty It's important that you discuss with them what type of treatment options they may be offering you and what type of balloon they may be using because each have different indications. Also, if you've been diagnosed with peripheral arterial disease, it's important to make sure your physician has the adequate and appropriate expertise in treating your blockages. With this week's medical notepad, I'm Dr. John Phillips.
3: Medical Notepad, brought to you by Cardiovascular Systems Incorporated's Patient Advocacy Campaign, Take a Stand Against Amputation, and the Way to My Heart. If you have questions about peripheral artery disease, go to standagainstamputation.com. And if you need someone to help you navigate your peripheral artery disease journey, go to thewaytomyheart.org. Remember, the advice and views offered in this program are for educational and informational purposes only. Always check with your healthcare provider and get explicit consent before taking any advice offered here.
2: Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy award winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
4: Time flies when you're having fun, and we're kind of rounding the third here on this show, but when uh, we've got to get to my favorite segment. However, real quickly, George, there was a question about. Kind of risk factors for you know having an aneurysm, an association between PAD, coronary disease, etc. In in fifteen seconds, tell us uh, what your thoughts are.
5: Yeah, there, there's a small association you know, with having an aneurysm and coronary disease. The, the biggest thing to worry about is a family history. And so uh, a lot of folks have asked about screening and, and really no studies so far have proven that screening for uh, aneurysms in the absence of a strong family history have been found to be beneficial. And I think that's one of the great opportunities for progress in this field with genetic testing um, as well as some better uh, non-invasive imaging. And
4: that's a great segue,
5: because
4: we're going to pin you down for a, another show, part two, next month. So folks, stay tuned. Kim, what do you got yeah, for I us? I think
3: now? it's time for a very special version of our Save My Piggies.
0: Save My Piggies. Your life, your limb, your story. With interventional cardiologist,
1: Dr. John Phillips, and Emmy Award-winning journalist, Kim McNicholas.
3: So today's guest, we have Dr. Kevin Morgan, retired veterinarian, also PhD. He is an author, triathlete, Ironman, all of the above. And my favorite hashtag for him and website is athlete with stent. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much for being here. We have with us also uh, Dr. George Onatakis and, uh, of course, our co-host, Dr. John Phillips, with us. But... Kevin, thank you for being here and telling your story.
7: What would you like to know?
3: Everything and anything. So
7: in, you, five, minutes.
3: You, in five minutes or less. No, I'm just kidding. Let me, let me uh, but- on a
7: previous conversation. Um, I sure. self-diagnosed the AAA in 2010 as a result of really weird symptoms, 10 miles into the run of the Lake Placid Ironman. If it wasn't for that race, I'd be dead now. Um About 10 days later, I worked out what was going on, so I went to see my physician and request a ultrasound. She put a stethoscope to my stomach, said she couldn't hear anything, even though my belly was moving up and down. But with a bit of insistence, she gave me a script. I went and got a scan across the road. It was a 6.9. And then a few days later, I got an MRI, had a a Cook and stent put in, and uh, my physician never, ever showed any further interest. And so uh, once I had the stent put in, I got zero advice on training. All I was told was uh, I would go easy if I were you. That was the input. So I did some research online, went to PubMed, et cetera. I found several examples of people dislocating AAA stents. One was with the use of a rowing machine because of a very, very, you know, very, high knees up to your chest. So I substituted an elliptical trainer for that, wrote about this online. Um, I also reduced uh, impact stress. I reduced, I got a bike built that had uh, less hip flexion because I don't want to, I don't want to yank on my femoral artery. I mean, I'd be dead if I wasn't a pathologist. It was because I was a pathologist. I worked out what was going on anyway. um, So I'm still doing Ironman training training what is it, 12 years later, Um, and I I started a Facebook page. I'm on Facebook quite a bit, and I think the most consistent problem I have is that patients are given very inconsistent advice. Some physicians I've seen tell people straight after an EVAR, within two or three days they can just go back to the gym and do whatever they did before, even before it's really recovered, And other people have been told they can never run again and they need to have a passive lifestyle. So I would say the most useful thing I can do is explain what I do and try and... And I give them advice. I've helped people quite a bit in that respect. But I I guess the real problem is inconsistency in terms of advice from their surgeons, which is understandable. I think it's up to us to work it out. I have no complaints about the medical profession. They keep me alive. I think it's great. Anyway, my... My AAA was followed by PAD, which started in 2014, numb feet, then uh, right gastrocnemia started seizing up with claudication. And uh, so now I had another problem. So now I had a AAA and PAD, but I'm still doing armband. And uh, so over the next seven years, I worked out how to get better blood flow to my feet. Hey, Kevin, why don't you tell the audience briefly what it was like to
5: recover from an EVAR in terms of the recovery? I I expected, you know, it was a fairly non-invasive procedure at that time.
7: I think it could almost have been outpatient surgery. It was like trivial. It was, in fact, if you watch how it's done online, it is magic. I can't believe it. I mean, it's unbelievable how well they do. I was actually invited up to Cook Medical in Indiana, And I met the people who built my stent, three ladies. I mean, it was like, what a gift. And they gave me a a reject, which now I show people and say, well, this is what I got in my aorta. And 12 years later, I'm still doing training.
5: It's especially amazing to consider um, how that evolution of technology has transformed how we care for patients with aneurysm disease when you compare it to the conventional approach, which is a large open operation where patient's in the hospital seven you know a week or two and lot risk of kidney problems and pneumonias and it's really one of the areas uh john i know you know from performing evars yourself that is really revolutionized how we're able yeah, it's it's it, it is it's absolutely
4: amazing uh when it's done in the right hand, with the right hands uh, you know you, like anything it can go sideways pretty quickly uh but uh so so kevin with respect to your pad you are just treating yourself uh, with exercise. You haven't had any interventions or anything like that. We've got about a minute left.
7: Uh, well, I had an ABI measurement. I've got, uh, I was advised. No surgeries against, or stents or anything. I was advised a gate surgery by Mark Farber. Uh, he's a good guy. I trust him. And so I developed 10 different ways to run, uh, which is in a book I just published, to improve flow. And it's dramatically improved my blood flow to my feet. And that's in the book. I would like All to right. say one thing about the AAA that's very important. Okay. People often write and ask me, I've been offered open versus an EVAR, what shall I do? And then I warn them of the danger of impotence after open. I've even had people write to me and say that they were impotent after open, I guess, if your nerve got cut. So I, I was never even given the choice of open versus EVAR. I mean, they didn't even discuss it. But uh, of course, I knew nothing about it back then. And so to me, that's a really important thing that men need to know, uh, that that is a risk, even though I know it's much less of a risk. Uh, if you want to know what I did about PAD. So Kevin, I'm going
4: to gonna have you stop right there because we've got to go to break, but when we come back, you're going to tell us your 10 kind of steps to, that, you, that you've done with running to kind of help with your PAD. So stick with us, we'll be right back.
2: Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation, For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
4: Thanks, everybody, for joining us. We've got about four minutes left. Kevin, I want you to share with us real quickly those 10 tips that you have uh, for your PAD with respect to exercise and running.
7: Okay, well, in 2015, when I got the ABI, I could hardly run at all. I'd have to stop at every two or 300 feet, that blood get in my calf. And, of course, uh, you know, I was doing nothing much better than the walking pace. Anyway, in the seven years since then, I've added one thing after another. And then about three months ago, I qualified for World's Half Ironman Championships. And I couldn't have done that if I hadn't made these changes. They're based upon three basic principles. One, encouraging blood to my feet and encouraging blood and tissue fluid through my feet, and then encouraging venous return. And my chapter titles are, number one, spread spread your feet. Try and separate your toes and your metatarsals, because there are blood vessels that run between them. Uh, Number two, have soft feet. Try and soften your feet, because if you scrunch your feet up because of the pain, all you do is restrict flow. Number three, Use the best socks and shoes possible. Never wear tube socks. They squash your feet. Have a big toe box in your shoe, but not so big your feet slide around. Uh, number four, do whole body running. And for that, you need to read Jack Heggie's book on Running with the Whole Body, which is the best running book that exists. Then you take the load off your legs, and you're sharing the load. Number Kevin, five, we've, got, we've
4: got 30 seconds left, my friend, 30 seconds.
7: This was the most important one. Flex your toes. If you, flex, if you gently to stroke the ground with your toes as you run, contracts muscles in your feet and your calves, compresses the veins, improves venous return, but you have to do it the right amount. I would say that was the most All right, useful.
4: so run run with your whole body, flex your toes. We got to go guys. Thanks everybody, great show.
2: Our mission is to help patients live a better quality of life through comprehensive education, real-time support, and high-touch advocacy in partnership with thewaytomyheart.org. And take a stand against amputation. Our purpose is to reduce the 1.5 million heart attacks and strokes and nearly 200,000 amputations annually. The heart of innovation is for educational and informational purposes only, and advice and views shared are not a substitute for medical advice from your own supervising physician. Do not act on any information provided in this show without the explicit consent from your own healthcare care team. If you think you are having a medical emergency, call your local emergency number or go to the nearest hospital or emergency room.
1: This show is distributed by The Innovators Network.
4: For more information and other great shows and content, visit theinnovators.network.